Well, like Oliver said, we're back this morning for part three of a little recent Q&A series. A little tradition we have at this church, typically when we're in between studying books of the Bible, verse by verse. So soon we'll begin that again, as I've been saying with Colossians. But for, for the meantime, we're going to spend a few messages helping answer your questions with Scripture in a way that edifies the whole body. You know, my dad was a doctor, and it's nice having a doctor in the family, because anytime you get sick and you have a question about what it is or what to do, just pick up the phone and call. It's really easy. I could research it myself. I could figure out what to do. But I don't have a medical degree, and it could take me hours, whereas my dad, just a few minutes, get all my answers, all my questions answered. And that's kind of what we're doing here. And look, you should study the Bible on your own, very much so. You, you have questions, you should find your own answers by searching the Scriptures diligently on your own. That's a profitable habit you need to build, but it's also nice from time to time to maybe call up the pastor and, and get a, a straightforward answer to your burning questions. And that's kind of what we're doing here with these Q&A messages, not meant to take the place of your own search and study in Scripture, but at the same time, just a way to help the church think through some issues from a Christian worldview and backed by Scripture. So let's do that now. Without further ado, I'm going to get into some of these final questions we have for this morning. And that will begin with question number one. What does the Bible say about modesty? What does the Bible say about modesty? You can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, you might be surprised to find that the Bible only in a few places directly addresses the issue of modesty. One of those is found in 1 Timothy. The first three chapters of 1 Timothy are all about how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. 3.15 says. So it's basically church life 101. And here in chapter 2, he begins by addressing everybody. In verse 8, he's got some instructions for men. And then verses 9 and 10 and following, he sets his sight on women. And the first issue he addresses is modesty. So follow along, 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So you can see the first issue Paul addresses with women is how they adorn themselves. And this issue of modesty certainly applies to men as well as women, and men can in a way be just as modest but back then, the outer appearances or the outer forms of immodesty were more common among women, as it kind of is today as well. The word for adorn is cosmeo. It means to set things in order. The Greeks called the universe the cosmos because of its ordered appearance. And later, this word was used to describe women who would adorn themselves as a means of ordering their appearance. It's from this word, we get our word, cosmetics. It has at its heart ordered appearance. So Paul's, his instruction for women is that they would adorn themselves or that they would order their appearance. How so? He says with proper clothing, verse 9. The adjective proper, it's interesting. It's cosmios. It's derived from cosmos and it likewise basically means ordered. So he's telling them to order themselves with ordered clothing. But he goes on to explain, like, what, what is he really talking about? What does an ordered appearance look like? He says, positively, 
modestly and discreetly. Modestly and discreetly. And together, these terms speak of a sense of propriety. This is a woman who understands the conventionally accepted standard of shameful dress and will not go near there. She's not going to bring shame or reproach on herself by her appearance. And she'll not be the center of attention. Remember, these words all come in a context of the local church assembly. And so this woman wants everyone's eyes not fixed on her, but on Christ. And keep in mind, verse 10, we're dealing with a woman who has made a claim. What claim has she made? In verse 10, she's made a claim to godliness. And such an inner claim should come with outer evidence. What does that outer evidence look like in verse 10? Paul says, good works. And that's the real adornment godly women should seek to put on and be known for. Good works that serve others and honor God. Now in the negative, Paul adds that modest and discreet adornment does not include braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly garments. None of these adornments verify or display the claim of godliness the woman makes. And to the contrary, they may go against such a claim. But why is that? Is Paul saying it's inherently wrong or sinful to wear gold jewelry or or have nice clothes? No. These examples are not inherently evil by themselves. And so why does Paul bring them up? Because when a woman comes to church dressed ostentatiously, it betrays a heart not of worshiping God, but of worshiping self. And that, I believe, is the core issue behind modesty in Scripture. We know that God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. And we know that when God looks at your heart, he he wants to see worship, a heart of worship. It's a pure heart that's living for his glory and not your own. Before salvation, our aim was to win praise for ourselves. We want people to to love us and value us and praise us above all else. But in Christ, we come to see God's glory rightly, that he's of supreme worth. We live for him. We gain a new aim, which is to make much of him because he's worthy and to praise his name. And so especially when gathering as the church, the last thing you should want is for your appearance to detract or distract from God's glory right? And that's the hard issue behind modesty. The godly woman or man making a claim to godliness does not want her outside appearance to detract or distract from the word of God or the glory of God, the worship of God. If you're going to church to get people to notice you, you're doing something wrong. If you go to church dressed for the Kentucky Derby, it reflects a heart that is worshiping self and is trying to win praise for itself. And that's a modesty. That's a modest. This goes against the spirit of the age where the fashion industry and the makeup industry, they're fundamentally narcissistic. And their message is you need to make yourself an object of desire so people will love you and value you and praise you and give you worth. But I trust you know that's nothing but vanity, vainglory, insecurity. I think we've all witnessed the the young lady who's just so desperate for attention and and value, but doesn't know how to get it other than showing her body. It's quite sad. But there is a better way. You see, in Christ, we gain all the value that we need 
You don't need the world to love you. You don't need others to tell you you're, you're worth something or you're attractive or valuable. Your value is found in Christ for the Christian. It's fixed at the cross where God sent Jesus to die in your place to redeem you. That's valuable. That God made you his choice possession. That's where your value comes from. First Corinthians 6.20, you've been bought with a price. And that price was Christ and his blood. That's, that's a high price. That's your real value. But of course, that has implications, as the verse goes on to say, therefore, glorify God in your body. The only approval you really need is from God. And that approval comes by faith in Christ, which is going to show itself in good works, in godly living. That's an ordered appearance to God. That's what God cares about. Let me read for you what Peter adds to this discussion. In 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4, he's directly addressing wives, but his words very closely echo what Paul says about modesty. But listen to 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. He says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And Peter makes clear that it's not inherently sinful to braid your hair or wear gold jewelry. How do we know that? Because when he says, for example, putting on dresses in that verse, the word is literally just the plain word for clothes. It it refers to any outer garment, any outer clothing you might wear. And so if you were to take what Peter says as the letter of the law, he would be forbidding wives from putting on clothes. But we know that's not the case. Just as Christ taught us to look to the heart, and so does Peter, he's affirming that modesty and proper adornment is not merely these things, but it's found where? In the heart. He says, uh, let it be the hidden person of the heart. Now, properly understood, I believe modesty is, it boils down to a heart issue. Now, what is precious in God's sight? The word precious is the word for costly. That God doesn't care if you wear costly garments. That doesn't impress him. That doesn't show off to him. He doesn't care. What pleases God is the hidden person of the heart. Your hair will turn gray. Your, cl- your clothes will fade. Your gold will wear out or get lost, but your godly character is invaluable to God, and that's what matters. And the question really is, do you live to please him or yourself? And who are you trying to impress in life? Are you living to impress other people, or are you trying to impress God by faith, which results in good works and a life lived under the sun? For some of you ladies, and even some of you men, let this teaching challenge your motives. Why do you do what you do? Why do you wear what you wear? Your, your hair, clothes, your makeup, your jewelry. And especially at church, is it to win praise from others? Praise for your name? Or, or have you taken every part of your life captive now to the glory of God? Ultimately, modesty is a heart issue. That God is more concerned with your heart of worship. But that heart should translate into external adornment that doesn't distract or detract from 
God's glory and his worship and the praise of his name. Your external adornment must not be done to, to seek praise for your own name. That's the heart of immodesty. But still, people, even hearing all that, people still ask, okay, but, but still, like, where's the line? Just give me the letter of the law. Just tell me exactly what I can and can't wear. Should skirts be like one inch below the knee or two inches below the knee? Like, just tell me the line. But sorry, Scripture does not go that far, and neither will we. It don't fall into the trap of legalism. You're left to apply maturity and wisdom to the particulars. And some think the answer is run the opposite direction to the extreme. So you might wear a Muslim hijab, or you might go full Amish and just go total modest, right? But that does not necessarily make you modest. One female Christian author testified of her past saying, quote, I wouldn't dare touch a spaghetti strap, but that didn't mean I wasn't determined to get noticed, end quote. You could go full Amish in your dress, and while you would not be sexually immodest, you might still have a self-seeking, self-serving heart, trying to win the praise of others in other ways, and that's still a heart of immodesty, and it's just going to show itself in another way. So beware. And also, I would remind you to not forget that God loves beauty. The Bible does not teach asceticism. That dressing in rags does not make you righteous. God, he's a God of adornment. He loves beautiful things. Like, have you seen a flower? Have you seen creation and what he's done with his, his own glory in reflecting that in creation? You know, also when God laid out the plans for the tabernacle, as an example... That thing was meant to be decked out in adornment. It wasn't just four white walls and a roof. It was covered in gold and lavishly adorned. Like there are ways to seek and reflect the glory of God in our architecture fashion. I don't think the answer is just for everyone to look frumpy, right? But it really is one of those check your heart issues. It really is. I can't give you a line. I can't give you a list. Every generation and every culture must face this issue afresh and apply biblical wisdom. You can't decide for others. That's legalism. But you can help shepherd and encourage others to just grow in maturity and grow in a love for God's glory. Ultimately, you're seeking to clothe yourself with Christ, Romans 13, 14. You renew your mind with scripture, and that's going to change your values. It will transform your values where you no longer look to Paris or New York for what's fashionable or what to wear, but to the Lord and the picture of godliness found in his word, that's going to drive you above all else. And you will seek your external adornment to match, to not detract or distract from his worship or name in any way. You're not living for yourself. You're not trying to win praise for your name. You're simply getting out of the way and pointing to God, especially in a church context, but really in all life. That is what makes you attractive to the Lord. We're going to move on to question number two now. Question two, is there any place for fasting now? Is there any place for fasting? So we need to really turn to see what Jesus said about fasting. We'll go to Matthew chapter six for that. You can turn to Matthew chapter six. As you turn, you got to realize Christ here, he's speaking into a context The Mosaic law only prescribed fasting on the Day of Atonement. And later kings, they might impose a fast, but otherwise 
Fasting was a voluntary practice in the Old Testament. And when it was done, it typically was sunrise to sunset, no food for the day, most times. But such fasting always came in the context of prayer. Abstaining from food in itself was not a righteous or meritorious act. Rather, the spiritual value of fasting came in denying the flesh just so as to completely devote oneself to the Lord in prayer. Be that a prayer of repentance, prayer of intercession. And so after some great sin, the people might repent, seek the Lord's forgiveness through prayer and fasting. Or in a time of great trouble, one might seek the Lord's favor through prayer and fasting. Fasting by itself is just a diet. And so if you want to go on a diet, go ahead. But it has no inherent spiritual value. In addition, fasting without the right heart motive has no value. That's what fasting became to the Jews in the Old Testament. It became this act of self-righteousness and turned into an empty ritual and a show of piety. Do you want to appear holy and righteous? Well, just fast and make sure everybody knows it. Make sure everyone knows you're fasting and you'll, you'll be perceived as very holy and, and righteous. The prophets cried out against this practice. Much like modesty, God looks to the heart. And a self-righteous, self-serving heart will invalidate all your fasting. It means nothing. And this fits into the context of what Jesus says here in Matthew 6. He's speaking into this background. And first, he talks about prayer. That's no coincidence. Prayer and fasting, they always go together. He gives instructions on prayer. Talks about praying from the wrong heart. Praying as a ritual. Praying in a way to be noticed by men. That means nothing to the Lord. And what he says about fasting is, is kind of the same. Matthew six sixteen through 18. He says next, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And speaking to a Jewish audience, Jesus, he simply assumes they will fast. He doesn't tell them to, but he assumes they're going to fast. With their prayers, sometimes they will fast. When they do so, they must not do so to gain the favor of man or appear righteous before others. God has zero regard for such hypocritical, empty acts of religion. It's not what it's about. Instead, he says, fast in secret. No one should even know you're fasting. Because you're not doing it for them. You're not doing it for appearance. That's like a modesty, right? Just trying to get attention for yourself. No, fast in secret and God will bless you. But, but why fast though? Like what's the point? I'll tell you first why not to fast. Do not fast to try and gain mastery over the flesh or to punish the flesh. Now say again, the Bible does not teach asceticism. That you don't gain holiness by self-neglect or self-denial in and of itself. That's powerless. And that was Paul's point in Colossians 2. That some false teachers, they were promoting just straight up asceticism. Like, you know, abstain from food. And Paul says in response, Colossians 2.23, These are matters which have, to be sure, 
the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It's a hard issue, and just, just trying to stop the flesh is not going to change things. If you think self-abasement or abstaining from food a few days is going to magically make you holy, you've got another thing coming. That's not the value of fasting, and asceticism is unbiblical. And so why fast then? We have to remember that the value of fasting, at least in Scripture, it's just always tied to prayer. It's married to prayer. Prayer and fasting Fasting and prayer, they always go together. And the examples of Scripture show that whenever there's a need to fervently call on the Lord in prayer, you might fast too. That might be a good time to fast. And as your hunger pains grow, it's meant to just multiply your fervency in calling on God. Such fervent prayers or prayer times might include fasting when uh, facing great temptation You see Christ himself, he's praying and fasting for 40 days when he's facing temptation in the wilderness by Satan. And so it goes for any great trial or affliction you might encounter as you are desperately calling the Lord to deliver you, you might fast as well. In addition, seeking God's wisdom for huge life decisions, that calls for prayer, doesn't it? And that might call for fasting as well. Two New Testament examples of that. Acts 13, 2 through 3, you see the church leaders, they're praying and fasting when they're choosing missionaries. And then Acts 14, verse 23, again, they're praying and fasting before the decision to appoint elders. That's true. Fasting is never prescribed or commanded for the church. It's never prescribed or commanded. It's not a spiritual discipline that's commanded for the church. And so it, it kind of puts it in a weird gray area for many people. Like, we're not really told to do it, but we see people doing it. So, like, what do we do? And suffice it to say, you would not be wrong to fast. It's a traditional practice of God's people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. It was carried forward by the New Testament Christians. It's not commanded, but it's a meaningful, traditional practice when attached to prayer, when it's married to prayer. And so if you choose to fast, good. Make sure to heed Christ's correctives on fasting and prayer. Do so in secret. Do not confuse it as a a mere ritual that's gaining you favor with God. But do so as a means of just seeking the Lord from a fervent spirit, where you're denying the flesh merely to focus all of your thoughts and energies on seeking the Lord in prayer. Question three now. It's going to get pretty serious and a little controversial. And you have to just hear me to the end because I don't want people to leave the church over this question. Okay? Question three. There's a verse in Isaiah and elsewhere in the King James Version that mentions the unicorn. Does this prove that unicorns actually exist? Question three. There's a verse in Isaiah and elsewhere. I know it's serious. It's going to get real, but... It mentions the unicorn. Does this prove unicorns actually exist? You might think this is a joke, but this is true. There are nine verses in the King James, only the King James, where you find the word unicorn. This person wants to know, like, is that a unicorn or what's what's going on here? Numbers 23, verse 22 
says God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. This is only found in the 1611, the, the old authorized version of the King James Bible. But sadly for some, though, no, this is not referring to the mythical horse with the horn on its head. Sorry to burst your bubble. But it is worth explanation because some might read the old King James and see unicorn mentioned nine times and think, you know, the Bible's just a fairy tale. It's just a myth. So it is worth talking about. We need to answer two questions. First, why does the King James say unicorn? Well, the Hebrew word in question is re'em. But the translators of the 1611 King James Version, they didn't know what that Hebrew word meant. They knew it was an animal, but that was about it. And so following the Latin Vulgate, the King James translators, they merely transliterated the Latin word unicornus into English unicorn. It's just a transliteration of the Latin word. The Latin Vulgate itself came from the Greek Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek, that word is translated monokeros. It means one horn. The rendering of this word in English as unicorn. So only found in the King James, all future English translations, including the new King James, opted for a different translation of this Hebrew word. It's based on better information. And that the new translation or, or the more accurate translation is less cool, I guess, but it's wild ox. Wild ox is the animal in question. So again, sorry to burst your bubble. But let's answer a second question. What's the identity of this animal? How, how do we know it's this wild ox? Why not the unicorn? Well, internal evidence tells us a few things about this animal. When it's mentioned in the Bible, it's attached to strength and ferocity. Like Job 39 verse 9, it, God himself is extolling the majesty of the animal kingdom to Job, which magnifies his own glory because he's the creator. And he mentions this animal, the Re'em, and God says of this animal that it cannot be tamed. You, cannot, you can't bind him with ropes. You can't force him to pull a plow. So it's not, it's not a small, weak animal. Also, it's not single-horned. Deuteronomy 33, verse 17, mentions this animal in the singular. So the animal is in the singular, but its horns are in the plural. So it's not simply a one-horned animal like a rhinoceros. It was later external evidence that helped identify this animal with the Arach. The Arach, don't worry, I had to look that up too. The Arach, that's an extinct species of huge wild cattle that roamed in Asia and Europe. Archaeological evidence from the Assyrians depicted this wild ox with an inscription that nearly matched the Hebrew word. Oftentimes, inscriptions would show this ox with one horn. That's because it was drawn in profile. Julius Caesar also described the ox in his work, Gallic Wars. It's very interesting because his description fits the depiction of this animal in Job. Caesar said it's a little below an elephant in size, but the shape of a bull. Its strength and speed were extraordinary. And quote, not even when taken very young can they be rendered familiar to men and tamed. End quote. So most scholars today believe that this animal best fits the auroch or the wild ox, as you'll find it probably in your Bible today. And modern English translations, they're just going off of better information for the meaning of this Hebrew word. And, uh, and that makes sense. The King James translators were merely transliterating a Latin word. It's 
where the word unicorn even comes from. It just means single-horned anyway. So, again, I, I think the person asking this question was holding out hope that the Bible may confirm the existence of unicorns. And listen, you know, maybe they're still out there. Maybe, maybe they're, they're found somewhere in a, a forest in, you know, Africa. I don't know. But they're not mentioned in the Bible. Now, we are going to finish with a double header of questions that are actually serious and very serious. So let's turn our attention to questions four and five. We're going to do back to back. Question four, what does the Bible say about mental illness and ministering to such people? What does the Bible say about mental illness and ministering to such people? And question five was asked by someone else, but it was related, so I'm just throwing them together. What does the Bible say about taking prescription medications for emotional slash mental conditions? So basically, what does the Bible say about mental illness? And what does the Bible say about taking prescription medications for emotional, mental conditions? There's a massive issue in our world today, and I'm no medical physician, but I can help you think through these issues from a Christian worldview. And that's what we're going to do. And first off, when it comes to a physical ailment or disease... The Bible is not against using medicine or natural means as treatment. For example, Paul gave Timothy a prescription one time. You know, Paul, he wrote for Timothy a prescription for his stomach ailment. First Timothy 5.23, he tells Timothy, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You know, a little fermented wine was a lot safer to drink than still water back then. So he wrote him a prescription. Anyway, nothing in the Bible suggests it's wrong to use medicine or the advancements of science to treat various illnesses and diseases. These are common graces to be thankful for. Scientists still don't actually know how Tylenol works or why it works, but I'm glad it works when I have a headache. So we can be thankful for common grace. But you should know that what often passes for science and medicine are not always based on fact. Each generation places their lives in the hands of the so-called experts, yet the following generation often refutes what once was considered irrefutable science, like shock therapy. Just know that many of today's solutions will be rebuked by tomorrow's research, and that's very much the case with mental illness. Mental illness has become a huge subject, though, so like, what are we even talking about? Well, we need to cut this issue in half. And you do that by making a sharp distinction between pathological and non-pathological conditions. What is a pathological disease or a physiological illness? Well, basically, in short, it means something is wrong with your body. Part of your body is sick or broken or not working. You have a disease or illness. These may be causing you other problems. And there are some mental illnesses which are true brain diseases, like Alzheimer's. That's a real degenerative disease of the brain. It can now be detected by brain scans. As your brain cells are wasting away and it's resulting in memory loss. And as a result of that real brain condition, someone suffering from that might ex struggle with a greater sense of anger and impatience as they're frustrated with their condition. Right, so that real brain condition might affect their behavior, of course. And in that case, biblically, there would be no qualms with taking medication to treat that illness. 
However, when most people talk about mental illness, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about non-pathological or non-physiological conditions. In other words, you've got someone who they're experiencing emotional, behavioral, or mood problems, but there's nothing wrong with their body or brain as far as we can tell. There's nothing wrong with them. They're physically totally normal. And that describes almost every mental disorder today. You run every test in the book, blood work, x-rays, MRIs, CAT scans, PET scans, every brain scan we have, and these mental disorders, none of them show up on any test. So you can't test for these. They're diagnosed by an interview. People appear physically normal. There's nothing wrong with their body. And as far as we can tell, there's nothing wrong with their brain. But they still have these behavior problems and mood problems. We don't deny that. So what's going on? The world has labeled these mental disorders. These include anxiety disorders, obsessive-compulsive disorder, bipolar disorder, depression, anorexia, attention deficit disorder, many, many more. Already, though, you should realize we have left the realm of medicine and we've entered the realm of psychology. Now, psychology in itself is not evil. It's been around since the ancient world. It's merely the study of the brain and behavior. That's, that's what it is at its core. The, the ancients practiced psychology. It's basically trying to answer Humans are strange. Why do they do what they do? What explains their moods and behaviors? And why do they have mood and behavior problems? What's, what's, what's the, core, or the cause, rather? Man has been trying to figure that out forever. And it's a good question. We ask that question. Why do you have mood and behavior problems, if you do? And I bet you do. The answer of modern psychology, up until late, has been mostly environmental factors. In other words, something happened to you that messed you up and made you the way you are today. So we're going to blame something in your environment, usually your upbringing. It has been and still is very in vogue to blame your parents. Like it's, it's all your parents' fault. Blame it on your parents. They screwed you up. That's why you have your mood and behavior problems. And from a Christian worldview, we would, in a sense, agree that, well, it's true. Your parents and your upbringing can drastically affect your behavior, your mood, your character. That's not the cause of your problems, though. That may be a contributing or complicating factor. We know the cause of your bad behavior is your sin nature, but you're not going to get that diagnosis from psychology. Psychology operates off of the presupposition that there's no God or he's irrelevant, so we don't talk about him, and that you have no soul or spirit you're just a bunch of molecules being controlled by a bunch of chemicals. Like that's the worldview on which modern secular psychology is built. And so most definitely, the facts of your sin nature and rebellion against God are never brought into the equation of your behavior and mood problems. Why do you have these problems? Well, God, man, sin, salvation, Christ, that is just totally foreign to the whole conversation. It's, it's out of the picture. Sin, out of the picture to secular psychology. But how does psychologists try and help people with these behavior and mood problems? And again, that's just observation. And that's, that's the greatest profit of psychology. They, they just observe people and write down observations, and that's all good. Like, we agree with the observations of the problems people have, but how do they help people change? And the answer of psychology in the past was to help people through psychotherapy. 
psychotherapy, and that's helping people understand and overcome their environmental changes, or challenges, rather. But that didn't really work. People did not find lasting help, hope, or change through sitting on a couch talking to someone, trying to, trying to diagnose their childhood problems. It wasn't really helping people. We're not surprised by that, since you're not going to help people change without addressing their heart, their sin condition, and their rebellion against God. But the world of psychology, it's not like they're about to turn to God. Instead, in recent decades, medicine has come to the rescue, or should I say drugs have come to the rescue, to bail out psychology as a worthwhile field. Okay, maybe it's not just your parents and environment. It's not just your upbringing, psychology says now. But, but you know, we can't admit to a sin nature. So now... It's all your brain's fault. That's it. That's the answer. We know so much more about the brain now. You're simply chemically imbalanced. That's affecting your mood and behavior. So just take all these pills. They may not work, but we'll just keep trying pills till something eventually sort of works. Right? That's the current state of modern psychology. And that's why these mental disorders are now labeled as mental illnesses and mental diseases. As if you have a pathological disease, but you don't. And therefore, you need real medicine, but these aren't real medicines. This has led to a radical shift in the practice of psychology, where long gone are the couch sessions of trying to psychoanalyze someone's problems. That's kind of old. Now, the psychologist is basically a pill dispensary, as you know. They're just prescribing these drugs right and left. It's overwhelming. If you keep up with the news, you know this is a huge crisis in America, right? Most of these drugs, they're like Tylenol, meaning we don't know how they work. We don't know why they work. They just seem to work sometimes. But, oh, they also come with a crazy list of side effects, like suicidal and homicidal thoughts. But, you know, oh, well, science, right? Like, whatever. But again, at least with our current technology, nothing suggests these are pathological diseases. So why are psychologists playing doctor? That already should at least give you pause, right? Do you think about that? Like, why are they playing doctor? That should caution you against what, what's going on here. And don't take my word for any of this. You go yourself and read DSM-5. DSM-5 stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's in its fifth edition because it just keeps changing and keeps being revised over and over again. But this is the Psychologist's Modern Bible. This is their authority for all these mental conditions. And you'll read about anxiety disorders. You read about ADD or ADHD. You read about bipolar disorder. Read about depression. Read about eating disorders. And every single article, over and over again, it says the same thing. The cause is unknown. Their words, cause unknown, cause unknown, cause unknown. Here's a quote from the ADHD article. Quote, it says, unlike a broken bone or cancer, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder does not show physical signs that can be detected by a blood or other lab test, end quote. And so it goes for all of these mental disorders. That there's no test at all that shows there's something wrong with your body or your brain. This should already tell you not to think of these disorders like Alzheimer's or epilepsy, where you have a real brain condition. That's not the case here. You're still thinking, though, but, 
but what do we make of these disorders? Because like a lot of kids have trouble paying attention, and a lot of people have mood swings, and a lot of people are depressed. So are, are we just saying it's nothing? Is, is that the Christian response, just deny everything? How does the Christian worldview approach these issues? Look, we are not anti-medicine or anti-science at all. But what we're saying is you should at least be cautious of pseudo-medicine and pseudo-science. And that's what these are. The solution, though, is not to just dig our heads in the sand as Christians and say, like, no, it's all spiritual. There's nothing physical going on here. How can we know that? We can't say that 100% with these mental illnesses. We simply do not know enough about the brain. So we cannot rule out real physical problems in many cases. For example, right now, take ADD or ADHD, attention deficit disorder. Right now, every test in the book says there's nothing wrong with this person. Every physiological or pathological test we have, there's nothing wrong with this person. But who knows? Maybe in 20 years, a new brain scan technology is developed and shows, no, this kid actually has a a damaged part of the brain that is affecting their focus. If that were the case, I don't think anyone would oppose real medicine or intervention as treatment. And so we don't know. All that goes to say, we do not need to rule out the physical side. That's not the Christian response. But I don't know about you. I'm going to hold, however, the physical side to most of these mental conditions in extreme doubt. Because even the so-called experts are profoundly ignorant about what's going on or what's actually the, the biological cause. They don't even know. So at the the best, I'm going to hold what they say with extreme caution. So I tell people, look, you go explore the physical options entirely, all you want, with a medical professional, not a shrink. You go to a medical doctor, and you explore the physical side thoroughly. Maybe you have a real issue, like a thyroid problem, that is actually affecting your mood and behavior. So explore that. We don't deny the possibility of physical condition. But as Christians, we're going to go further. In addition to cautiously exploring the physical side to mental disorders, our worldview tells us that we also need to openly explore the spiritual side of things. Could it be that your behavior and mood problems are due to your sin? The Bible would say, yeah. That's because according to scripture, you do have a soul. It was created in the image of God, but now it exists in rebellion against him. You have a sinful flesh with a wicked heart and evil desires that are opposed to God and his ways. That's a serious spiritual condition that will greatly affect your mood and behavior. So look, you go explore the physical side with the doctor, but don't sleep on the spiritual side. Could there be more going on in your inner man that, than you know about? And so take ADD, for example. Is it possible that what was labeled as a disorder is really just a heart of disobedience, selfishness, and laziness? Could it be a heart that's demanding its own way, made worse by parents who are not disciplining their child? Could it be, could sin be a contributing factor to that behavior problem? Our worldview says yes, uh, a whole lot yes. And it says also that, you know, drugs won't solve that problem. At the very best, it's a band-aid approach. But all the riddle in the world is not going to change the heart of a child. And scripture shows us these are heart 
level problems. You need a heart level treatment. And the drugs of any drug can never affect your heart, your soul. And so instead, we are to minister God's word and the gospel to change hearts. That challenges you. Do you really believe in the power of God and the gospel to change someone? Or do you put more faith in man's solutions to change someone? Can God really change people? Does he still change people from the inside out? Yes, he does. The God's word working through his spirit has the power to change people from the inside out. And that's going to change their mood and their behavior. It's going to improve, even fix their mood and behavior problems. Through repentance and faith, submission to Christ, and being filled with the spirit, People can be saved and sanctified. And that's going to drastically change their spiritual heart condition. And by renewing their minds, that's going to radically alter and improve their behavior and mood problems. There's no hope in the world. You'll be told your brain is broken, even though they don't actually know that. Then you'll be given drugs that may or may not work. Most will make things worse. And all you really get is a new label to live with for the rest of your life, like bipolar. There's no hope of change. There's no hope of being different or or growing out of that. The only hope is hopefully finding the right drug cocktail to just numb the pain of life. That sounds depressing. But there is nothing but hope in Christ, hope for real change. I've seen the depressed, the anxious, the obsessive, the bipolar, the anorexic, even the suicidal, find transformation and new life and lasting change in Christ. That's because there is a spiritual dimension to most of your behavior and mood problems. And these are only treated with spiritual means, repentance, faith, spiritual growth, renewing your mind. In all, as Christians, I would just encourage you to doubt man, not God. When push comes to shove, doubt man, not God. Is it a sin to take drugs for mental disorders? No, it's not a sin. This is not a sin issue. Nothing in scripture can can make that a sin issue. It doesn't address a lot of these. But it is a wisdom issue. It's a wisdom issue. And I want you to be wise and careful and discerning. Not to be taken advantage of by the world and its worldview. It's godless worldview. If anything... Doubt man's solutions, especially to problems which may actually come from the heart. Man's expertise changes every year. It's constantly being rebuked. And don't put your trust there. You trust God and you trust his word. We're not anti-medicine. We're not anti-science. I am thankful for all the true medicine and true science out there. We praise God for those common graces. But you need to remember that God's word, working through his spirit, is a sufficient balm for soul sickness. And that's what most of these mental disorders really are. The soul is sick. Sin has been unchecked in the heart and has corrupted someone's mind. But God's word through his spirit is their hope and is their answer. So you minister the gospel to that person to help them change. Help them explore physical things by all means. But you minister the gospel to them and watch God's spirit change them And do that that miracle that keeps happening of regeneration, new life, transformation. And if you need more help, well, that's where you pursue 
biblical counsel. Well, I think it's a fitting note to end on. Let's always remember in this discussion, in all things, really the sufficiency of Christ, that only he can redeem us, body and soul, and give new life and new hope to those who, who follow him. But you only experience that if you place your faith and trust in him. And so I'd urge you to do that today, even right now, to call on Christ as your Lord and Savior. Only then will you find this everlasting peace and hope and joy and purpose that the world and all its drugs can never buy. Let's make Christ our hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is true. It's sufficient for our needs. The Bible doesn't tell us everything. We don't learn calculus in scripture. But Lord, you've given us your word and your power behind it for everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray we apply it to our lives and hearts all the time. And we look to you for answers of conditions of the soul. We thank you for the common grace of medicine for the body. But when it comes to the soul, we need your word to guide us, to challenge us, and to give us the hope of change that Christ affords. May Christ our hope. May we be convinced of his sufficiency to help people change and even be transformed. That's our hope, Lord. May it be true in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.